You get a line, I'll get a pole, honey. You get a line, I'll get a pole, babe. You get a line, I'll get a pole, we'll go down to the crawl that hole, honey, baby mine. All right, before the break, we back into talking about fish. Let, let's, let's start the second half doing the same. In this case, an article from The Economist with the provocative subheadline, Why Everyone Should Eat More Ugly Seafood. Notes the distinguished British publication, monkfish are low in calories and fat. They're packed with vitamins. They have dense, firm flesh, which makes them relatively easy to cook. They can be cut into chunks, marinated with egg whites, corn flour, and seasoning, then briefly blanched in boiling water. Monkfish tail can even be stir-fried without breaking apart, as more delicate fish tend to. In fact, there's only one problem with monkfish. They look hideous. With their bulging eyes and white mouths lined with rows of sharp teeth, they are in fact nightmarish. In Dutch, monkfish are called zedevil, sea devil. Fishermen who caught them used to throw them back. They are still usually sold without their heads, but the days of chucking them overboard are long gone. Japanese diners love the fatty liver, while Italians may still derisively call them toad tails. That does not stop them from eating the flesh. Notes the magazine, there's a precedent for species going from shun to consumed. In America, lobster used to be fed to prisoners and slaves, which was a result of their abundance. But also, no doubt, because they're difficult to eat and look rather like inflamed cockroaches. It also notes, sadly, the turtles were once a plentiful food. In the 19th century, few foods were more esteemed than terrapin turtle soup. Many species were eaten nearly to extinction. Yet it notes today, turtle eating is more closely associated with backwoods, eat-what-you-can-catch diets than with liveried waiters. Anyway, the piece notes that uh, abundance and tricky preparation may put some diners off. A lot of easily found species that take some work to cook can be delicious. They cite the gooey duck. It's, it's written as geoduck, but I guess it's pronounced gooey duck clam. And they note that the catfish would probably be more popular were it not a bottom feeder that often resembles a deranged Hercule Poirot. The Economist says its clean, neutral flavor makes it sustainable for a wide range of cuisines and techniques, which I'm pretty sure Miss Marillon will disagree with. I disagree with the neutral flavor part. I have to agree. When last time I ate a catfish, it kind of reminded me of mud. I think I'd rather eat natural cat. Don't make me report you to Happy Tales again. Anyway, the punchline is that the popularity of bluefin tuna or Chinook salmon may keep them from surviving our fondness for them. And the magazine says it's better to stare into sea devil's beady eyes or to grips with a gooey duck than to contribute to the permanent loss of a species. Well, we have to agree. And and as I recall, I've had monkfish, and it, it was pretty good. I'm quite certain it was served without the head, which reminds me of that great line from the classic movie Chinatown where private-eyed Jake Geddes, played by Jack Nicholson, is sitting down to lunch at the Albacore Club with Noah Cross, played by John Huston. When the plate's put in front of him, Noah Cross says, I hope you don't mind, Mr. Gitz. I like it served with the head on. To which Jake Geddes replies in his Jack Nicholson drawl, Oh, I don't mind, as long as you don't serve your chicken that way. Right, let's back into a little bit of politics. We're really concerned about these headlines we keep seeing about Biden. You know, can he pull his presidency out of a tailspin? Joe Biden is perceived as being in a tailspin. Two years ago, in the year 2020, Donald Trump, the president of the United States, 
induced this nation on a course of action regarding COVID-19 that produced something on the order of 900,000 excess deaths of Americans. Somehow to this day, he's not been held accountable for that. Oh, and we should mention that as of last week, you can now travel in the United States, you can now get on an airplane without having to demonstrate your COVID status. That's a little bit of what we, we think is good news to report. It may not be if things flare up again. It certainly seems the number of people vaccinated or people who have had the disease at this point and thus gained immunity that uh, we're a lot better off now than we were two years ago. But I'm looking at an article referring to the fact that more vaccinated died during the Omicron peak than at the Delta height. And of course, a lot of that is related to the fact that many people still went unvaccinated. And if you have risk factors like being over 65 or diabetes or obesity, you, you know, it, it, ain't, it ain't a picnic. I think I'll reread a piece we mentioned on the show in April, quoting Nicholas Goldberg in the LA Times, saying that at the start of the pandemic, in March of 2020, Dr. Anthony Fauci warned the U.S. could face as many as 240,000 COVID deaths. President Trump and allies scoffed, urging Americans to get back to normal, quote unquote, after just a few weeks. And said Nicholas Goldberg, we all know how that worked out. Goldberg notes that scientists warn that immunity wanes against Omicron and in the U.S. and abroad, new variants are still emerging. We may be at a pause in the pandemic rather than its end. An accompanying piece noted that in just two years, COVID became the third most common cause of death in the United States. And there's just no denying the fact that an awful lot of deaths and an awful lot of morbidity associated with COVID points right back to Donald Trump's leadership and the position taken by his allies. Anyway, we're going to keep harping on that because it should be harped upon. What is wrong with people? It should be noted that U.S. health experts are forecasting another wave of breakthrough COVID-19 infections as newer Omicron subvariants gain ground on the dominant current sub-lineage of the virus. The good news in all of this is that vaccines are still effective at preventing the worst outcomes. To that I would add, I'm pretty sure that having had it will also be of great help to you in the future. One question that's still lingering is, how did this virus get started? It was expected that by now, we should have located the wild source of the outbreak, found the population out there among bats, presumably, that are harboring the virus that became COVID-19. But we're not there yet. At this point, the World Health Organization is recommending that in its strongest terms, that a deeper probe is required into whether a lab accident in China may be to blame. That stance marks a sharp reversal of the United Nations Health Agency's initial assessment of the pandemic's origins and comes after many critics accused the WHO of being too quick to discount a lab leak theory that put Chinese officials on the defensive. There was a point in this program where we were saying, well, it doesn't look like the lab leak idea really holds water, and we're now, we're now back to being in doubt ourselves. Last year, the WHO concluded it was extremely unlikely COVID-19 might have spilled into humans in, a city, in the city of Wuhan from a lab. Scientists suspected the virus jumped into people from bats, possibly via another animal in between. Yet in a report released last week, 
The WHO's expert group said key pieces of data to explain how the pandemic began are still missing. The scientists said the group would remain open to any and all scientific evidence that becomes available in the future to allow for comprehensive testing of all reasonable hypotheses. It appears pretty clear that the Chinese are not responding helpfully to inquiries. Letters were sent to senior Chinese government officials last February requesting information, including details about the earliest human cases. It's unclear as of now whether the Chinese responded. The experts said no studies were provided to the WHO that assessed the possibility of COVID-19 resulting from a laboratory leak. And Jamie Metzel, who sits on the unrelated WHO advisory group, has suggested that the group of seven industrialized nations set up their own COVID origins probe, saying the WHO lacks the political authority, expertise, and independence to conduct such a critical evaluation. Meanwhile, Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson Zhao Lijian, not Dr. Zhao Lijian, just a spokesperson for the Foreign Ministry, said, the lab leak theory is totally a lie concocted by anti-Chinese forces for political purposes, which has nothing to do with science. Well, I don't think so. And in my pile of infectious disease articles, I have a piece titled The Return of the Plague. Yes, as in the Black Plague. And this one is definitely worthy of discussion, but we're not going to do it today. Anyway, back to politics. An excess of 900,000 Americans dead thanks to Trump's policies and the GOP is planning to put him back in the White House. At least large elements are. Maybe not Bill Barr at this point. But uh, Trump is planning to demonstrate that he can get people elected and ability to get people elected gets you political power. Several House GOP incumbents appear to have resisted Trump-aligned primary challengers. Representative Dusty Johnson of South Dakota overcame a challenge sparked when he voted to certify the 2020 presidential election result. Yes, apparently the Republicans in South Dakota Voting to certify the election is something you should be removed from office for. Well, in this case, so far so good. Johnson's going to move on to the November election. Representative Chris Smith of New Jersey bested a group of opponents, despite criticism from Trump. And Representative David Valadao of California, who it turns out is a distant, distant relative of this correspondent, and one of only 10 House Republicans who voted to impeach Trump, was leading against a GOP challenger. Jeez, that news is a week old. I, be- I, better, I better verify that Cousin David made it. Anyway, as we would remind you, and in this instance we're going to report from Politico, which shares our opinion, the GOP strategy for 2024 is clear. Challenge all election losses and cause chaos in heavily Democratic districts. Heidi Prib- Prisbilla writing in Politico, notes that a top Republican operative in Michigan was recently recorded discussing plans to recruit an army of party-trained poll workers who, unlike poll watchers, have direct influence over vote-counting procedures. Thousands of MAGA followers have volunteered for this task, most of whom believe Donald Trump's big lie of rampant voter fraud in 2020. If installed as poll workers, they would be connected with GOP lawyers and party-friendly district attorneys who could intervene to block vote counts in Democratic-leading districts. Then, Republican state legislatures would have an excuse to ignore election results and choose a slate of Republican electors. This sophisticated precinct strategy is being led by Steve Bannon, 
Trump pardoned Steve Bannon, noted Vanity Fair. Bannon took part in the failed effort to overturn the 2020 results, but this time he plans to hijack the infrastructure of the election system. And here's the reason why we need to have televised hearings explaining to the public in the clearest possible terms that Trump was behind the attempted overthrow of the government and installation of him as, well, let's just say strongman leader. We hate to use the word dictator. Jonathan Chait writing in New York Magazine said the 2020 insurrection has become an institutionalized movement. Tellingly, the Bannon operation has met virtually no intra-party resistance with GOP officials widely agreeing that all Democratic election victories are inherently illegitimate. In 2020, Trump's efforts to overturn the election spectacularly failed and culminated in the January 6th violent assault. But the next time, the goal is to successfully and legally contest and overturn an unfavorable election outcome. And, notes Jonathan Chait, it just may work. I have to pause a moment and say, isn't, isn't it odd to see Liz Cheney, the daughter of Dick Cheney, <laughs> in there doing the right thing, trying to hold Trump accountable? Anyway, here's a problem related to the Democrats and Joe Biden and the stopping of Donald Trump that uh, a lot of Americans are noticing that uh, inflation has finally kicked in, as people have long suspected that it would. Again, referring to the New York Times article from a couple months ago by Charles Blow, they note with inflation, crime rising, and the culture war raging, most Americans feel stuck and angry, and some are blaming President Biden. The Times noted that Biden is a decent man, but not very visible or charismatic, and he hasn't made an emotional connection with voters. Meanwhile, the Republican strategy of inflaming anxieties about racial and LGBTQ issues is working. Young progressives and blacks are frustrated that Biden has made no progress on voting rights legislation or police reform. And it would appear the average middle-of-the-road voter is taking a look at some of the quote-unquote progressive policies being tried out in liberal locations and finding them wanting. We have noted that Chesa Bodine, the DA in San Francisco, was recalled by a pretty solid 60-40 margin. We don't often quote National Review on this program, but Jim Garrigy, writing in National Review, said it isn't every day that conservatives get good news from Nancy Pelosi's backyard. But by a 20-point margin, voters deemed Chesa Bodine's experiment of defanging police in favor of so-called restorative justice a disaster. Bodine took office and unveiled a radical agenda of de-emphasizing the prosecution of drug cases and property offenses. As a result, San Francisco's jail population is down while the streets are dangerous, drug-infested nightmares. Even the Bay Area's far left concluded Bodine's approach is failing them. Actually, I think that's not, strictly speaking, completely true. One of the few things Bodine could do was uh, crack down on drug offenses. And my understanding is he didn't, he didn't slack off in that department. Now, in terms of, like, petty crime... California voters, in a proposition a few years ago, made it, uh, they changed the law to where a theft of property up to $950 was still going to be listed as a misdemeanor. I've seen footage of um, career criminals going around San Francisco, breaking and entering, and one of the, and I'm not sure, this this might have been on Fox, okay, so I'm not sure about the, uh, the, the, the accuracy of it, but I'm willing to accept that it's highly possible, perhaps probable, that um, a given criminal being shown, his face was being shown on television, was in fact guilty of his 14th 
crime. A friend of mine came to visit from Yolo County a couple days ago and described how he was talking to uh, the DA or assistant DA about what's going on there. And he said that in the current environment, uh, the, out of the 320 arrests that he made, I think in one month, 200 were turned right back out in the street. Something like 20 actually got prosecuted. And he said of the 200 that were back on the streets, they were out committing crimes again and getting arrested again. My source on this is not a MAGA hat-wearing conservative. Writing in the New York Magazine, Ross Barkin said, Chesa Bodine himself might be a scapegoat, but the voters in San Francisco and Los Angeles were clear rejections of certain strains of liberalism that buoyed reform-oriented prosecutions across the country and sought to defund the police. In Los Angeles, Rick Caruso, a Republican-turned-Democrat and real estate developer, built a coalition by championing more cops and broken windows policing, while promising to build 30,000 shelter beds to replace L.A.'s tent cities. If you've been to San Francisco recently, Dear listener, you know that things are bad. I intended last week to go to the city and and see a a film I was quite interested in, but a short drive to the Mission District convinced me that the parking garages nearby were probably not safe, and when friends of mine who know the city assured me, oh, I could park a few blocks away where the neighborhood's much better and I'd be fine, I elected to, um, to not do so. Anyway, at some point we'll return back to our friend uh, Howard McKinney's uh, statement. And Howard did join us in the Throckmorton to watch the uh, Smothers Brothers. Thought about having him on this week, but we're going we're to hold him in reserve for when we really need him. I mean, our plate's pretty full today. Howard pointed out the Democrats never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. And, well, let's just look at the state of Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania, celebrity physician Mehmet Oz prevailed in the state's GOP Senate primary. He edged out former hedge fund executive David McCormick, meaning that Oz, age 61, will compete in a crucial race for control of the Senate against Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman. Evidently, Fetterman won in a landslide, but it's been somewhat overshadowed by disclosures about his health. Um, His wife originally described a stroke that he had as kind of a hiccup. Fetterman, on the other hand, said it almost killed him. Just hours before the polls closed, the campaign said that Fetterman, age 52, would undergo surgery and have a pacemaker with a defibrillator installed. We are pretty sure that the defibrillator was not, in this case, installed by cardiologist Mehmet Oz, although we're not absolutely positive. Now, the campaign is saying that the defibrillator will treat a previously undisclosed cardiomyopathy, which was first diagnosed in 2017. The six foot eight Fetterman weighed 418 pounds in 2017 before losing 148 pounds in a year. But he says he did not take his prescribed heart medication. I mean, what the hell? I guess, I, he also should, I think, point out that he, he's not beating his wife any longer. So in Pennsylvania, we're going to have a cardiologist running against a guy with a heart condition. Mr. Miller posits the idea that if, they're, if during the debate, Fetterman collapses on the stage, well, then, you know. Mehmet Oz can run right over and do CPR on him. Is he obligated to do that? Legally, a doctor is not obligated to do that. But if he does provide assistance, a doctor is expected to provide a higher level of care than John Q. Public. Anyway, there seems little doubt that Americans are are, are feeling somewhat unsafe, even though the statistics in many cases don't necessarily support a reason for that. In some jurisdictions, yes. Certainly in San Francisco. I would say this, if you, if you want to guarantee you're going to lose elections, 
start talking up the idea of defunding the police. And as an adjunct to that, make sure you get on board the issue of transgender rights. The average person looks at a person who was born male, who was biologically male up until deciding that they were something else, going on the women's swim team and winning awards, well, they just look at that as has chosen silence in the great debate about her, at the very least, unfair. A recent piece by Michael Powell in the New York Times took a look at the testosterone question. In March, after winning the 500-yard freestyle in the NCAA Women's Championship in Atlanta, she skipped a news conference. She's lately only spoken to Sports Illustrated saying, I'm not a man, I'm a woman, so I belong on the women's team. The piece notes that even nomenclature is contentious. Descriptive phrases such as biological woman and biological man might be seen as central to discussing differences in performance. But many trans right activists say that such expressions are transphobic, and they insist that biology and gender identity are largely social constructs. I'm here to tell you, as a guy who got a degree in biology from UC Davis, the idea that biology is a largely social construct is nuts. The piece notes that some trans activists try to silence critics whom they, identif- who they derisively called TERFs, which stands for Trans-Exclusionary Radical Feminists. A spokesperson for a gay rights group urged a reporter not to platform, that is, not to quote those she said held objectionable views, including Martina Navratilova, a retired tennis legend, a champion of liberal and lesbian causes. Navratilova argues that transgender female athletes possess insurmountable biological advantages. So I'm a turf. Okay, that's the way you want to go, Navratilova said in response. I played against taller women, I played against stronger women, and I beat them all. But if I faced the male equivalent of Leah in tennis, that's biology. I would have had no shot, and I would have been livid. Article quotes Michael Joner, doctor at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, as explaining some basic biology to people, noting that since prepubescent girls grow faster than boys, they have a competitive advantage early on. Puberty washes that away. Joyner said, you see the divergence immediately as the testosterone surges into the boys. There are dramatic differences in performance. Now, for keeping score, the records for elite adult male swimmers are on the average 10 to 12% faster than the records of elite female swimmers, an advantage that has held for decades. Little mystery attends this. Beginning in the womb, men are bathed in testosterone and puberty accelerates that. Men, on average, have broader shoulders, bigger hands, longer torsos, greater lung and heart capacity. Their muscles are denser. Said Joyner, there are social aspects to sports, but physiology and biology underpin it. Testosterone is the 800-pound gorilla. And I think I need to pause right there to state that I, I think that most people get this. This is obvious to, you know, 95% of the population. And yet, progressives and the Democrats don't want to say anything bad about them. You know, it takes, it takes someone like Bill Maher to speak up on this topic. Are so afraid of offending anybody by referring to biology as, you know, a real thing that we're, we're stuck. Now, of course, here at Radio Parallax, we are equal opportunity offenders. But you really need to look at what the evidence shows. And according to this article, scientists view performance differences between male 
and female elite athletes as nearly immutable. Israeli physician Ira Hammerstein in 2010 examined 82 events across six sports and found that women's world records times were 10% slower than those of men. Here's a stat that really whops me between the eyes. Sprinter Allison Felix won the most world championship medals in history. Her lifetime best in the 400 meters was 49.26 seconds. In 2018, 275 high school boys ran faster. And I I have to say, in a rather cynical fashion, how long before one of those boys says, uh, you know, I'm really a woman, and becomes the world champion, and along the way gets a college scholarship? We welcome your feedback on this, dear listeners. You can write us at info at radioparallax.com. Just want to close by noting that I asked a tennis aficionado about, uh, about the issue of men's and women's tennis a couple years back. And while he agreed that without a doubt Serena Williams was the best women's tennis star in the world, ever, no doubt, were she to go head-to-head against men's tennis players, tennis experts such as John McEnroe said she wouldn't crack the top 700. Anyway, in short, we think a really good way to like lose elections is to alienate people that look at this and say, hey, biology is biology. It's just the way it is. Anyway, I don't want to end on that note, but we're out of time, so I'm going to have to. That too is just the way it is. This program was produced by Edward Jumping Salmon McMillan, as he's known in Taipei. By the way, how's that name change going? Uh, Not good. Oh, too bad. All right, the weeks to come, we're going to bring you back Greg Palace. We're going to bring you back Stephen Harper. We're hopefully going to also bring you back Jefferson Morley. That's going to be very, very provocative and interesting. Oh, oh, we also expect Michael Trachtman to return to speak with us. It's going to be good. Listen in. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you. Because if you use drugs, you better leave it alone. Drugs are contagious. They're killers. Every drug is a killer. Stay away from drugs. Drugs will take your life away. And if you want to live, stay away from drugs. Because they are super bad, super bad, super bad, super bad, super bad.